Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is an online marketplace we ourselves use and love. Their simple platform connects podcasters with shows of any size to brands looking to sponsor content such as host-read ads, interview segments, and more. Podcorn makes it easy for podcasters and brands alike to browse the marketplace, communicate directly without going through a middleman, and find a great match for a potential partnership. We love that Podcorn makes it easy to review the details of each brand and product, then choose to message and speak with the ones that seem to be a great fit for our show and our listeners. Unlike other marketplaces which sell airtime to sponsors without podcasters' input, Podcorn gives us the chance to choose to work with only the brands we support and want to share with listeners of our show. We also love that sponsors are able to see key stats and metrics of the podcasts they are interested in working with, so they know exactly what to expect from their sponsored content. So whether you're a podcaster yourself or a brand interested in sponsoring shows like ours, we highly recommend Podcorn. Click the link in our episode notes or visit the Brands We Love section of our website to sign up for your free Podcorn profile and start browsing the opportunities. Fall 2020, Dr. Jordan Karsten and a small team of anthropology students from the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh pick their way down a gently sloping hill that runs from the dusty road towards the field and brush below. It's early morning. The summer sun has not yet lifted the dew from the native grasses and underlying growth on the property, and many of the students wear rubber boots to keep the moisture from soaking their clothes. A surprising number of snakes weave their way through the dense tangle of brush and roots that mark the boundary between the farm field and untamed land. Up ahead, the rising sun glints off the surface of a small pond, which quickly turns the fertile soil surrounding it into a murky bog. Dr. Karsten points out key areas of interest as they walk, assigning teams of students to dig test pits at various points. At key levels in the dig, they use trowels as they must carefully examine each scoop of earth that is removed. Dr. Karsten's team is conducting an initial examination of a property in Amro, Wisconsin, property owned by Jean, who earlier reported to police her belief that the land just might contain the missing remains of Starkey Swenson. One year later, armed with the latest technology and information on the case, Dr. Karsten, his students, and a team of experts plan to conduct an expanded search at that site in hopes of finding Starkey Swenson's body, and with it, answers. This is Cold Case Frozen Tundra. I'm your co-host, Matt Hiskus, here alongside Dr. Jordan Karsten himself for another episode in our search for answers in this case. This is Episode 7, How to Find a Buried Body. Hello and welcome to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, 
an anthropologist and university professor, and your co-host for this investigation into the missing body of Starkey Swenson, who disappeared after leaving his Nina, Wisconsin home on bicycle in August of 1983. If you're joining us for the first time, we highly recommend that you listen to the earlier episodes in this podcast, as we cover Starkey Swenson's disappearance and decade-long missing persons investigation, the arrest of John C. Andrews, who's the man charged with Starkey's murder, his trial, and new breaks in the case that have led us to this point as we plan an in-depth archaeological search for Starkey Swenson's skeletal remains. In our recent episodes, we heard from Gene, an Amro, Wisconsin landowner, who recalled John Andrews' strange connection with members of her family during the investigation and trial for his involvement in Starkey Swenson's disappearance. Years later, after purchasing the land she now owns from the same family members whose lives were so closely tied to John's, Jean learned even more troubling information about John's behavior at the time. A neighbor to her property informed Jean that she had long ago witnessed John Andrews using a small access road to enter Jean's land at night and, using his headlights to cut through the thick darkness in the Wisconsin countryside, the neighbor said John was digging in a section of the property. He would later tell people he was gardening. Although Jean most clearly recalls John Andrews spending time with members of her family at the Amro property in the early 1990s, right around the time that he had posted bail and was awaiting his murder trial, we've spoken to other family members who co-owned the land with Jean, who are certain that John was also at the site during the 1980s, around the time of the murder of Starkey Swenson. Some have even stated that they remember seeing John in the field, after dark, on the night that Starkey disappeared, and that they'd heard he was seen the same night at the Drop Zone Bar, covered in dirt. The Drop Zone Bar, if you recall from earlier episodes, is the same location John gave police as his alibi for the night of the murder. He told investigators he drove there after leaving his ex-wife Claire's home on August 13th, and said that he could not have murdered Starkey Swenson because he was at that bar, about 25 minutes away from the scene. Okay, so here's a quick recap. We know John Andrews was at Claire's home during the day and into the evening on the date of Starkey's murder. Multiple witnesses have testified to John being there, and he himself does not deny this. Claire's house is right across the street from the school where the murder occurred. We also know John Andrews was in Omro that night, per his own recounting of events. Although he says that this is proof he didn't murder Starkey Swenson, Our new information from Jean and her family creates a second possibility, that in addition to visiting the drop zone bar that night, John may have driven a few minutes down the road to the nearby property and possibly buried Starkey's body there. Yeah, this is certainly an intriguing possibility. And there really is no way to know what happened on that land, whether simple gardening or something much more nefarious, without conducting a thorough search. And that's exactly what you, your students, technological experts, and law enforcement plan to do. Yeah, that's right. We're preparing to begin our search for Starkey's remains in the very near future. Our hope with this search is that by recovering any skeletal remains, we can provide answers in this case and offer some closure in a story that's dragged on for decades. Not only do we have Gene's new information aiding this effort, but we also have technology that simply didn't exist in prior years, which, combined with proper archaeological techniques, should allow us to conduct a comprehensive search of the site. 
In this episode, we wanted to share some insights into the technology that we're going to be using, what we hope to gain from it, and also discuss the science of an excavation for human remains. We'll cover what we look for when we arrive at a site of a possible burial, the processes that we use to dig for remains, and what we hope to find buried in the ground, and and ultimately, how we determine whether any skeletal remains are tied to the individual in question. Great. So, a little later, I will be interviewing you, Dr. Karsten, on your experience looking for both ancient and more recent human remains, and how that might translate to the upcoming search for Starkey Swenson's body. But before that, let's dig a little into the technology that will be used in the AMRO search. We had the pleasure of interviewing Dan Joyce, another anthropologist who now specializes in the use of ground-penetrating radar, or GPR for short, to assist in archaeological excavations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I was first approached with the request to coordinate an excavation on Gene's property in search of Starkey Swenson's remains, I immediately thought that this was a scenario where GPR could be quite useful. We have a large piece of property to cover, and although we have some general information on the area in which John Andrews was seen gardening at night, it was dark, nearly pitch black that far in the country, and we don't have a specific spot pinpointed for us to dig. Not to mention that, in terms of the memories of the people who saw John Andrews there, it was almost 40 years ago, and so it's really hard to remember exactly where he might have been gardening. GPR is able to help us out a ton in situations like this because it can give us some key information that helps guide the best places for us to dig deeper. For more information on how GPR works and how it might be helpful in our search, here's Dan. Ground penetrating radar is really nothing more than uh, electromagnetic pulses from an antenna thrown into the ground uh, they look at the, di- the dielectric conductivity in the soils and in the objects that are underground. Um, a really bad analogy that has not a lot to do with the way it works is that if you're looking at different densities of things in the ground, uh, you know, obviously soil is less dense than a rock. Uh, it's doing the same thing with the dielectric conductivity. Uh, so it will show things that are of different conductivity. What I what we do when we go out in the field is we need some sort of a target. Uh, so it's best to do a walkover of some sort uh, and identify potential disturbed areas, pits, things like that. Uh, the ground penetrating radar is can do a, a decent sized piece of ground, uh, but you really don't want to go over like twenty five by twenty five meters. And the reason for that is if you if your vision, your your ability to see what's in it uh decreases the larger you go so if you do a a 75 or 100 meter grid uh you're going to see uh probably several times less clarity than if you did a 25 by 25 uh so if we can find a pit and do a quick five by five meter over it uh that would be perfect and the way we do that is we basically uh set up a very quick grid a square or a rectangle and we set pin flags on the baseline this way and then on the farthest baseline this way. Uh, the pin flags are alternating colors. They're a half meter apart. I have a 400 megahertz antenna, which is great for uh, archaeology. It's great for looking for burials. Uh, in the best soils, it'll look about 12 feet down or so, uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, 
a lot depends on the quality of the soils as to how deep you're going to penetrate with your signals. Um, once you get into clays, uh, there's some difficulties. The clays tend to attenuate or, or deaden your signal. Um, so these flags are a half meter apart, and that's the way we collect. We go from flag to flag uh, and collect different lines of data. And we can do that in a unidirectional way, starting at the baseline and going all the same way. Or we can do it in kind of a zigzag bi-directional manner. Uh, there's a little more accuracy to the unidirectional way, uh, but you end up walking twice as far. So it takes more time, obviously, and takes more energy. Um, what we're doing when we collect the data, uh, we do the transect. So if it's a five by five meter, you start at the zero line on one end and you go to the, to the five. And if you're doing that in half meter increments, you have 11 files you're doing one for the zero and then 10 more for the rest. Um, and all you're doing is you're looking at a slice in the ground. So if you cut a cake straight across and lifted that skinny layer up, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at those, those layers in your kit. Uh, it's really, it's really a pretty simple mechanism. Uh, one of the things you see is, is there's a, there's a screen, um, that you can look at in the field. And one of the things you see on TV all the time is, is they start pointing at the screen and going, Ooh, uh, Oh, Ooh, Ooh. Um, <laughs> That works really well if you're looking for a brick wall. Uh, <laughs> if you're looking for something more subtle, uh, like a body, um, you rarely see anything in the field. Uh, what you have to do is you have to take that data back. You have to run it through uh, at least four different cleaning processes to take the noise out of the data. Uh, and then what we can do is we can look at those profiles one at a time to see what's unusual. Uh, are there dips in the profiles? Is there is there a pit? Is there a it's a garbage pit, a tree fall, or a burial? Uh, we don't really know, and we don't know until we go out and test. Uh, you know, we have to dig a hole. And what we can also do is we can take that data and drop it into a three D file and get a three D representation. Now, this isn't like uh, on some of the TV shows where you see. Uh, you know, they're looking into the ground 3D and they see, oh, that's a teacup down there. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, it's not floating in space in 3D. Um, what it is, is you've got three planes, you know, obviously X, Y, and Z, you can move them around uh, to get a better look. And the best part of it is you can look, kind of take an aerial view uh, of it uh, on the Z plane. And you can see if, you know, have, you have some good, well-defined burials. I mean, you can see an oval disturbance. And then you look at the cross-section of that, and you'll see a dip in it, uh, which shows you that there was something dug there. Um, and that's really, really it. There's not a whole lot to ground-penetrating radar as far as what it does. It's a, it's a wonderful, uh, uh, intricate machine that works very easily. Uh, and anybody who can push a cart and push a few buttons and do a little bit of software work can, can really work it quite easily. Nice. So I got a question for you, thinking about this in relation to our missing person, Starkey Swenson. He, we have to assume, based on everything that we've read and heard about the case and what the witnesses said, has at least his clothes, shoes on. Now, if he's decomposed to the point that he's a skeleton, but you have those extra artifacts along, does that pick up? Does that increase the ability for GPR to pick up this burial? 
Yes. Yeah, it certainly does. And of course, if it's a formal burial, if you have coffins, you know, uh, coffin handles, things like that, um, a decent sized piece of metal uh, belt buckle uh, will certainly reflect differently within what looks like a pit. Uh, and you can see that on the screen. It'll show up as a bright, bright color. It, it, well, depending on if you're using grayscales or colors, it'll, it'll show up brightly. Uh, so that does help, uh, that sort of thing. I can definitely understand, after hearing Dan's explanation, why you're excited about the possibility of using GPR in the upcoming search, Dr. Karsten. It sounds like the technology will not only help you determine areas in the ground where soil has been disturbed in the past, but also might help locate any remaining elements of clothing or other items Starkey may have had on his person at the time of the murder. Exactly. As Dan points out, we aren't going to see a neat 3D image of bones lying in the dirt, but we can learn where there are areas of interest, possibly items buried, and then flag those as key locations for us to search. And really importantly, GPR can allow us to find areas of disturbed soil. And so with a really sensitive GPR, we've got a good chance of finding any place where a clandestine burial might be located. I expect that we'll identify several such spots on the property through the use of GPR. Although we don't expect each area to lead to a discovery, in fact, that would be problematic. And we also don't plan to dig only on those exact locations. It will definitely give us a great starting point and our best chances of recovering anything buried at the site. So we've heard a little about the GPR technology that will be used to help guide the search. But let's talk a little more about the science of the excavation. I want to interview you about your role in this, what you look for at a possible burial site, and basically, how you find a buried body. All right, that sounds good to me. What if you could have local, fresh groceries delivered right to your door without ever having to leave your home? With Instacart, you can do just that, giving you even more time for the things you love, like listening to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. Unlike the other guys who nickel and dime you each time you use their app, Instacart offers unlimited grocery delivery for one low monthly fee. Forget that key ingredient for your secret recipe? No worries, you have unlimited deliveries. Instacart can have a personal shopper bring it right to your door in as little as one hour. That's right. Instacart lets you shop multiple stores in a single order, highlights deals to help you save money, and their shoppers hand-select the products you love based on your preferences. If you like, you can even receive smart suggestions for new items that pair well with your groceries that you usually buy. Instacart's personal shoppers pick the freshest produce and keeps your eggs safe, too. Click the link in this episode's show notes, or visit the Brands We Love section of our website to use our unique referral code and let Instacart know we sent you. Not only does it help support our show, but you... As a new Instacart user, will receive free delivery on your first order over $35. Instacart, save yourself that trip to the market and spend more time doing the things that you love. Okay, we're back and we're recording this interview live as Dr. Carson and his team prepare to begin the excavation for Starkey Swenson's remains at the Amro property. But before we get into that, let's uh, ask some questions, Dr. Carson, about your involvement in cases like this and, and hear a little bit more about how that goes. So you've clearly been involved in a number of excavation efforts in your career, both in discovering ancient human remains, as well as in searching for more recent evidence of criminal activity. 
When you first arrive at an area that might potentially contain a burial, what do you look for right out of the gate? Are there possibly environmental signs or other indicators that a body might be buried nearby? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of possible indicators that can lead us to find a clandestine burial. One of the first things that I'm going to do if I arrive at a scene of a search is organize a pedestrian survey. And what that pedestrian survey is, is where we're going to take everybody who's involved, line them up, uh, and have them use a compass to make sure that they can keep a straight line and walk an entire area that is in question. And depending on the ground cover, if there's not very much, we can space people out, you know, 20 feet apart. Uh, if the ground cover is really thick, we'll pull people together almost to the point where their shoulders are right next to each other. The whole point here is that we've got overlapping fields of vision looking right down at the ground. As we walk along the ground, what we look to do is scan for some of these telltale signs of clandestine burials. The easiest way that we can find a, a missing person or somebody that might be just skeletal remains is by looking for the skeletal elements themselves on the surface. And the way that they end up on the surface can be varied. Erosion can lead to the exposure of a skeleton, and we might be able to see it just that simply. In other cases, it's the activities of other non-human animals, especially canids. And so dogs, coyotes, wolves, foxes will dig in the earth. They're attracted to decomposing bodies, uh, and they look to retrieve for themselves skeletal remains. And they like skeletons because they contain marrow, and that's something that they want to consume. And so a coyote or a dog, a wolf might actually dig in the area where you've got a clandestine burial, pull out some of the skeletal elements, and we might find those just in the process of doing a simple pedestrian survey. I mean, that's kind of best case scenario. What else might expose skeletal elements from a clandestine burial that we might see in a pedestrian survey? Well, agriculture can. Uh, the process of plowing land, farmers digging in farm fields can also lead to the exposure of skeletal elements on the surface. And so we're going to look for that too. Just covering the territory of interest with a pedestrian survey really can is a great way to start. I mean, it's the way that we want to be sure that we don't have any skeletal elements sitting on, on the surface. One thing that anthropologists really help out with when it comes to pedestrian surveys is being able to tell law enforcement the difference between human and non-human animals. On Jean's property near Omro, you know, we've got 12 acres. There are many animals that have potentially died on that property in recent years whose skeletal elements we're going to find in a pedestrian survey. That's going to include white-tailed deer, possums, raccoons. Hell, the place is covered in snakes, to be honest, which really sucks. And so some of their skeletal remains are going to be present there. For most folks, unless it's a skull, it's really hard to tell if you're looking at a human versus non-human animal. And anthropologists are trained, myself, my students, uh, in order to recognize those anatomical features that set our species apart from all the rest. And so when we find bones on the surface, we're going to be able to figure that out really quickly. So that's one of the first things that we're going to do. If we're lucky enough to find skeletal elements on the surface, I mean, that makes the search really easy, but that isn't typically what happens. What do we look for instead? Well, clandestine burials typically result in depressed areas of earth. Think about it like this. You take a cadaver out to a place where you want to bury it. You dig a hole, you place the body inside, you cover it with dirt. 
That dirt is loose, first of all, right? You've taken packed dirt, you've basically loosened it up with a shovel or whatever digging implement you're using. You place the body inside and you cover it back up with dirt. Well, that dirt is gonna compact and that can result in the kind of depressed area that you see. Another thing that happens is the decomposition of the body itself. And so the torso, the thorax, they decompose in terms of the soft tissue. And this does lead to a depression in the earth. And so anytime we see a depression, we're going to flag that as an area that we're going to potentially want to excavate at some point. There are other things that we can look for for clandestine burials, like piles of dirt near a depression. If you dig a clandestine burial, uh, so if you dig a clandestine burial and you're going to place a body inside, once you put the body inside, there's not as much space to put the dirt back in. And so this almost always results in some leftover dirt sitting on the surface. Now, the problem for us is that Starkey Swenson's murders almost 40 years ago. And so some of these kind of geological aspects, right, in terms of the soil, these leftover dirt piles, the depressions might not be as readily apparent. How can we get around that? We're utilizing all the aerial photography of the area that we can get our hands on. And so aerial photography can be a help for us to recognize areas where a clandestine burial might have been dug. In the process of digging and disturbing the dirt, it can encourage additional plant growth all by itself. And so we can look for that extra plant growth, even in the satellite pictures, as areas that we might want to investigate through excavation. The other thing is when a human cadaver is placed in the soil, you end up with additional extra kind of abnormal plant growth in the area where that burial exists. And that's because a decomposing body provides the lipids, the carbohydrates, the proteins that plants can utilize to fuel their growth. And so any place where we find extra growth might also be some, uh, a location that we want to excavate and actually look to see if we've got a, a burial in the area. Okay. So it sounds like in a case like the disappearance of Starkey Swenson, which is decades old, there might be some indicators present that there's a burial in the site, but there's also a decent chance that some of those indicators have faded away. We've heard from Dan how GPR might be able to assist in identifying dig locations, but how else do you set up your excavation to ensure nothing's missed? I mean, really, what does an archaeological search even look like? Well, I mean, setting up our excavation to make sure nothing's missed does take a lot of effort. And so GPR is great. Like Dan said, and like I've mentioned, GPR is going to help us see items that are actually in the ground. It's also going to help us locate disturbed soil. And so we're going to excavate in any area that it looks like there's disturbed soil or items buried in the earth. Now, how do we make sure that nothing is missed? Um, really, in this case, we utilize uh, something that's not tech that technologically advanced, but it really helps us, and that's sifters. And so we have these kind of half boxes of wood that in the bottom are covered with a screen mesh. And we take all dirt that's excavated from any area that we think might be a clandestine grave, and we push it through that mesh. We shake it through. And in the process, we make sure that any small fragments of bone or small bones themselves, like the bones that are present in your wrist or hands, your ankle, your feet, teeth are going to be caught in that screen. And so in a situation where potentially a body is moved, um, typically some small skeletal elements will be left behind. Sifting allows us to make sure that we didn't miss anything small. And so that's one way that we ensure that nothing is missed 
during these types of excavations. When it comes to an archaeological search, what's it look like? Besides the pedestrian survey that I've talked about, we also will dig a series of test pits across the area where we think that John Andrews was, you know, gardening at night. And what test pits are is just these small holes where we actually look at the layers of the earth. What we call the layers of the earth, they're different colors. We call it stratigraphy, right? Each layer is an individual strata. By looking at the stratigraphy, we can see if the layers of the earth are intact in a place where no burial's ever been dug and no soil's ever been disturbed. We'll actually see the layers of the earth in different colors, almost like a layer cake. If we see that, we know that we're not missing anything there because nobody's ever disturbed the soil in that location. In locations where we excavate test pits and find, you know, modeled looking soil where soil of different, many different colors is mixed together from many different layers. Then we know that something's disturbed the soil there. We don't know what it is. I mean, it could have been a clandestine burial being dug. It could have been a tree falling and then, you know, different soil actually filling in that spot. It could have been a coyote that was digging a hole, right? And that eventually mixed some of the soil together and some new soil filled in the hole. And some of that soil, you know, is different colors from the different layers that that coyote had disturbed. But that's really the key. We want to find intact stratigraphy, intact different colored layers of, sto- of soil that will allow us to recognize that there's never been any disturbance in that location. And it's the combination of all these things, sifting, looking at stratigraphy uh, and making sure that it's intact that will allow us to be sure that we haven't missed anything on this property. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting to me. And you talked a lot there about stratigraphy and how that plays into whether or not you pursue a hole. Are there any other factors that indicate to you when it's time to stop digging or, or is there a certain depth you dig to that you try to reach where a human burial just can't exist anymore? Yeah, I mean, there's really not a depth where one couldn't exist, but it's all about the stratigraphy to know when we can stop digging. I mean, if we dig a hole, like let's say the GPR hits in a spot where we can see that, or at least it's indicating to us that there's disturbed soil. If we dig in that area and, you know, the GPR shows us that, okay, we might have disturbed soil down to four feet and we're down three, four feet and we see that the stratigraphy is intact. Something else is setting off the GPR. Maybe it's, uh, you know, kind of Soil that's not similar to the soil around it could be uh, from many different geological processes. But in those kind of situations, you know, we if we see this the stratigraphy intact, we can be assured that nobody is dug there and nobody's placed a burial there. And so that's what really tells us when we can stop digging. When we see intact stratigraphy in any of the locations that are questionable, if it's intact, not mixed, not modeled, not disturbed, we know that we're, there's no burial there um, for us to discover. So depth is not as important as looking at the stratigraphy. Okay. So in past episodes, we've talked about three possible theories which could leave to Starkey's remains being on this property we're about to search. Two of them, first, that John Andrews buried the body in Amro on the night of the murder, or secondly, that he stored the body elsewhere and then moved it to Amro near the time of his trial around the time Gene remembers him spending time on that property, both would indicate that the body's still on that land. But our third possible theory, that John buried Starkey Swenson there on the night of the murder, and then later, possibly near the time of the trial, 
move the remains to another location would mean there's no longer a skeleton left to find on Jean's land. In prior episodes, you've mentioned that there's still some options, if this were in fact the case, to prove a skeleton had possibly been there. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, in this case, we're really counting on the fact that some decomposition has taken place. If Swenson's body was placed there initially in the 1980s and then moved in the 90s, we would expect some considerable decomposition to have occurred possibly, and I think likely to the point of skeletonization, where there's very little soft tissue present. In my experience in Wisconsin, a couple of years of time of exposure to Wisconsin elements on the surface, um, slightly longer than that if buried in the earth, will result in skeletonization. If, let's say, Andrew shows back up at the Omro property, digging up the burial, comes into contact with bones, tries to collect them all to move them to a different location. He could have been successful in moving many of those bones. It's very unlikely that he would have been able to recover all of the small bones that would have made up Starkey Swenson's skeleton. A human skeleton includes 206 bones, give or take. Sometimes people have an extra one or, or you know, less one here or there, but about 206 bones. Those small ones are what we hope to find with those sifting screens, so that even if a body was moved 10 or so years after the murder, we'd still find some human skeletal remains that we could utilize to identify Starkey Swenson. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, to me, it makes sense that when you're burying a body, you're burying one object, one one body, but then when you return back to dig up that skeleton, you have to account for 206, roughly, items and get them all if there's not to be some sort of evidence left that we could potentially find. Yeah, and without sifting, I mean, that is a task that is nearly impossible. I mean, having excavated at many archaeological sites, I can tell you it's not hard to take a small bone, like a carpal, so one of the bones of your wrist, uh, or bone fragments if there was a fracture. And in the process of removing dirt from a burial, accidentally place some of that, some of some skeletal elements in that dirt that you're removing. It's only through the process of sifting that we can be assured that we're not missing any of those small pieces. Great. So, like you said, it sounds like if Starkey Swenson's body has ever been buried on Jean's land, there's at least a decent likelihood that something was left behind that we can find. So... What happens if you do find a bone or, or even a full skeleton? Are there ways to determine whether it is, in fact, Starkey Swenson's remains? Yeah, I mean, there's actually a lot of options here. Let's say that we have the situation where we only find a few bones, maybe, you know, related to a scenario that we've outlined where the body's been moved by John Andrews. If that situation occurs, and let's say we recover just a few small bones, we could still potentially identify those small bones as Starkey Swenson's. How do we do that? Well, just like you'd see on CSI Miami or something, we'd be able to do that thanks to DNA technology. We could take those small bones and actually extract very small, basically bone powder from those bones. And in a laboratory, specialists would be able to extract genetic material and then match it up to some of Starkey Swenson's close living relatives. And that would allow us to get an identification for Starkey Swenson. Now, what if we have a full skeleton? Well, we can still use DNA technology for sure. 
but there's actually a lot of other options that we have like in the toolkit of an anthropologist that would allow us to achieve a accurate, 100% accurate identification. The first thing that we would do if we did recover a complete or nearly complete skeleton would be assess bones like the skull and the pelvis to build what's known as a demographic profile. And so we'd be able to look at the pelvis and say, okay, this skeleton belongs to a male or a female. Uh, and we can do that with pretty high accuracy, accuracy in the 90% range. We could then say, looking at the skull, looking at the teeth, looking at some aspects of the pelvis, how old was this person when they died? As long as they're not a sub-adult, we usually tend to kind of give broad age ranges. Like maybe this person's a young adult from say late teens to early mid thirties. Or maybe the person's a middle-aged adult from say their thirties up to around 50. Or maybe they're an older individual who's older than 50. And we can use skeletal changes that occur in normal people that we can use to kind of estimate how old this skeleton might've been, at least for this person at the time that they died. We can also look at features of the skull to estimate what anthropologists call ancestry and what the police and oftentimes gets reported in the media is race. And so we can say things like, okay, is the person likely of European descent? Is the person likely of African descent? Is the person likely of Asian? And typically we include Native Americans in there too, descent. And so we can look at some telltale anatomical features that can clue us in to the likely kind of population history background of any given individual. Now for Starkey Swinson, we're looking for say a male who's white, who's over 50 certainly. And then we can also look at the long bones to say how tall was this person when they were alive? So we can measure the femur, the tibia and other bones to come up with an estimate for the person's living height. And so we can match that up. Now, if we got a height estimate of like four foot eight, obviously there's something wrong there and it's very unlikely to be Starkey Swenson. But, you know, if we find a general match, we've probably got a good chance that we're looking at Starkey Swenson. Now, how do we get from there kind of matching a demographic profile to a completely accurate identification? We'd have to rely on his dental and medical records. We could look at the records of his dental work or any kind of medical work that Starkey Swenson has had and simply try to match that up um, between what's present in x-rays that it says dentist took and what we see in x-rays of a skull that we'd excavate. And so we can match up via hundreds of points, things like fillings, their shape, size, and location. We can look at even anatomical aspects that are unique, like the shape of the pulpal uh, anatomy, um, and the cusps and the root structure and the trabecular bone, which is this kind of spongy bone that is kind of inside what you think of as any skeletal element. And we can try to make, come up with a match there. If after looking at hundreds of points of comparison, we find that it's a complete match, that's it. That's as good as what you see in a, in a fingerprint, right? In terms of accuracy, we'd have a hundred percent accurate identification of Starkey Swenson. Now, in dental x-rays, they often catch these air pockets that are present in what most of us think of as our forehead, but anatomically is your frontal bone that are known as the frontal sinuses. And the frontal sinuses, their shape, their size is unique to each person. And so we could even look at those frontal sinuses to compare in, say, Starkey Swenson's dental x-rays to an x-ray we could take of the skull if we excavate one to say, okay, look, after looking at all these points of comparison, these are an exact match. 
And therefore we know we're looking at Starkey Swenson, just as good as using fingerprints. So we have a lot of tools in our toolkit in terms of achieving that identification. And I really hope that, that we're lucky enough to excavate uh, you know, skeletal remains and be able to come up with this identification too. That's really interesting. And I want to thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with us. I know this is a slightly different role for you on this show, being the subject of the interview. Um, that is our show for today. We hope you enjoyed learning more about the up upcoming excavation. And we also want to thank Dan Joyce for allowing us to interview him. If you have additional questions about the science of an excavation, please message us on social media or use our Contact Us form at frozentundrapodcast.com to let us know. We'd be happy to provide an answer or maybe even do a bonus episode where we dig a little deeper in, into the number of questions we've received. So join us next time as we kick off the search for Starkey Swenson's body in Amro. Yeah, this is a big moment because after all this background and looking at how this works, really we're going to put the methods into practice and hopefully, um, you know, bring some closure in this case. It really all comes down to this. Let's go find some answers. If you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, we highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, Newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay. Mm -hmm.